Starting a podcast can be very time-consuming. I've been doing it for more than three years now, and my biggest challenge was finding a way to distribute my episodes across major audio platforms in a way that was easy, effective, and free to use. That's when I came across Anchor. And the best part is that you can actually make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So if you're interested, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What's going on, everyone? This is George Khalife. We're back with another episode of Let's Grab Coffee. I'm joined today by a good friend, a uh, friend from Toronto, actually, uh, Andrew Whitkin, who's the uh, president, founder of Sticker U. Now, if some of you in Toronto have seen the uh, the store that opened up recently, you're probably familiar with this. But for those who haven't, uh, Sticker U is basically an online platform that allows you to design, create custom die-cut vinyl products. Basically, think of it as like the go-to online site to create the best sites, uh, sorry, stickers uh, in the market. Uh, the cool thing about this is Andrew just opened up this kind of physical store that you can go check out, create stickers in person. I think we talked about, this was offline, but now it's online, uh, about you know him kind of doing a, a history of sticker museum uh, as part of the store. So a lot of cool things coming up. Maybe a non-traditional business, which is why I wanted to do this podcast with Andrew. But he's a great guy, very down to earth, always down to talk, and, and a really cool entrepreneur. I want you guys to get to know. So, thanks for doing this, man. Hello, hello. Good to be here, George. So, tell me one thing. I was looking through kind of the history of this um, business that you so successfully created. Uh, but one of the, the kind of cool things I, I I came across is that you actually started this. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you started this in '08. So the question to start this off is like, what prompted you to start a sticker business in the midst of a recession? It's <laughs> a uh, very good question to start off. Um, uh, let's see, back in 08, when I had the idea about StickerU, um, I'd kind of worked to, for two big companies, one in entertainment licensing and the other one in consumer product toys. Uh, and I kind of was had reached a sort of point in my career doing marketing, licensing, and, and product management uh, that I, I kind of had this exciting feeling that the world was changing such that people were valuing customized products um, far more than they were valuing mass-produced products. Um, and so when I sort of had that kind of epiphany, I got excited about learning about all about customized products. And that's where I kind of researched what has been done before and people could make you know their own calendars with their photos, they can make t-shirts, they can make mugs business cards, um, and yet the one product that had not been done very well that I kind of I stumbled on when I was in California that kind of just made me realize this has not been done well is die-cut stickers. Um, and um, I think, you know, at the time what happens, like most entrepreneurs, is you get so kind of focused on your idea, you put the blinders on to the economy and where the world's going, um, and you just <laughs> you convince yourself that regardless of where that's going, this is the best idea in the world. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I don't think the economic backdrop was negating my ability to kind of just focus on this uh, as the idea. I think the the luck comes from just being able to convince a few people uh, to put in some some seed capital to get the idea off the ground and see if it's it's got a real market. Um, and I was lucky enough to raise about a half a million dollars on a on a on a lean business plan that kind of uh, allowed us to build 
uh, with an initial uh, group of uh, developers, uh, the first prototype of Stickerio. Who did you go to? I mean, because I, I, and if I remember correctly, you didn't raise that much in terms of kind of traditional funding. So most of it, call it if you will, uh, bootstrapped apart from maybe it was like 1.5 mil or something like this. But for that 0.5 that you talked about, which was kind of the seed financing, who did you go to? I mean, obviously yeah. on the sticker side, it's not like a pure SaaS business. I'm assuming that raising money for a business like this might be more difficult. So did you have any you know, additional challenges than the regular tech entrepreneur that we know of today? Um, yeah, I, I think it, it, you know, I think any tech entrepreneur will tell you no matter what the idea, it's never easy raising money. It's a lot of work, but, um, fortunately with the, um, with, from, from myself, it started with angel investors because, um, this was really early, early stage. Um, and it was, it was a low enough amount of capital that the first round being just like a half million that, um, you know, a few angels could come in, uh, if they liked it and fund it. And so it was basically six people. Um, you know, putting in various amounts. Um, and uh, that, those people were started with friends and family, and then it expanded to their network. Um, so it was kind of half friends and family, half people I had met, and, and, and they had agreed to put in some money. Um, and that, that kind of start, that kind of seeded it. It was, uh, that was like, yeah, I remember we got the checks cashed in December 2008. So the storm of the financial world had already set in. I don't think all the layoffs were as bad as, as what happened in, in 09. And that was actually to our benefit because we were able to kind of scoop up some some pretty good uh, tech talent. Um, as some companies were laying people off in 09, we were able to pick some people up and uh, and that helped build you know the initial foundation of uh, the company. But inevitably, all we did was build a prototype. Uh, we showed it to everyone in April or May of 2009. And, and then raise another million from that because people got excited and knew we had to kind of commercialize this. And, and, and that was the sort of runway to, to, to at least get to launch uh, and a little bit beyond in 2010. And for those early investors, I'm assuming they kind of ask you the, you know, typical questions that investors will ask. But what's kind of the, the vision for this? Right. So now that you can actually look back almost a decade uh, in hindsight, it was the vision that you pitched to investors then. Uh, does that align closely with what sticker you is today? And if so, what was that actual statement that you gave investors during that seed round? Um, yeah, I would say that our initial, you know, again, what sometimes happens as an entrepreneur is you use your own previous experiences and those experiences guide your insights to, mm -hmm. let's say, a business model, you know. Um, and so we had originally thought that who would be the, the market that would love die cut stickers and the first market that we kind of thought of was, you know, kind of like 12 to 24 year olds, uh, skateboarders, teenagers, um, people who really want to express themselves as stickers. Um, okay. And so we built a model that was both uh, a proprietary website technology e-commerce site that pe people could order that. And then in addition to that, also having um, third party websites like, like Batman.com and Scrapbooking.com and Coca-Cola.ca. Um, and, and allowing those brands to allow their fans to order uh, their their IPs stickers. And so the model really kind of was the scalable part that got people excited was that this, you know, technology we could build could go on anyone's websites and that would allow us to get tons of awareness. Um, and, uh, and, and of course, have a mothership called StickerU.com where people could order and get everything. Um, so I think that's kind of how it started. It was very consumer focused with some B2B partners that who were trying to engage their consumer um, fans. 
but once we launched and, you know, you know, fast forward probably six months after launch, we realized that the, the most lucrative and, uh, and passionate customers we had were small businesses and organizations, um, you know, bakeries, coffee shops, uh, churches, sports teams, brides, um, and not, not really uh, skateboarders. So, and, and in addition to that, the third-party websites that had kind of rolled out our, our widget um, were finding very, very low conversion on those sites, um, uh, not, not, not according to what we had thought would convert. And so in re-looking back on it now, we realized there was some flaws in that plan. There was some user experience problems. Uh, for example, you go into Batman.com and you can order a sticker, but there's no information in that widget on you know, shipping times and uh, customer service information. And, and so people got really nervous about putting a credit card down on something that just sort of popped up. Um, and, uh, and then back on our core website that we built, it was very youthful friendly and very creative. And so the average business, though, though, were, though they were ordering from us, uh, I think they even had a little bit of nervousness because they, they kind of felt like this was a very teenager website and were they gonna get really great quality stickers. Um, but but the, the good thing about it is that we built the technology and the engineering of the production so that people literally could order die-cut stickers for like $10. And it was very disruptive. I think the lowest price point you could get online at the time for such a thing was like $75 to $500, depending on where you went and if they used dyes. So it was so, so there was so much value that people were willing to actually try it. Um, and then from there, we actually, the next couple of years had to evolve the whole front end to be really a site that kind of catered more and, and, and answered the questions. And the ease of use was, was geared around small businesses. Well, yeah, I know 100%. And, and I think what you're highlighting is, is really key because I see that, especially like a lot of entrepreneurs, obviously you hear this all the time. Um, you look at like different platforms, they start out one way and they eventually have to pivot. Uh, for you, that realization, I think from what I understood, seemed to be that, you know, the uh, maybe the, the market was a little too small. And then you found out that the, the revenue segment was much larger on the B2B side for kind of the, the mid-tier companies. Yeah. And you decided to make that shift. Was it like a challenge on the marketing side? Because I know that you mentioned, you know, they would go to the side and they see, saw it as like a teenager brand or something. How right. did you solve that key problem to actually suit the B2B market more than B2C? I think the, I mean, the good thing about that problem is that uh, as long as you can kind of redesign your website and change some of the user experience, um, uh, which you can, it takes a bit of time, but it's 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 probably not as fundamental as having to rebuild the die cut technology and the production uh, software that we had to work on. Because it, it, ultimately those two things were still working fine. It didn't matter what we were printing uh, as long and what we were die cutting as long as you know orders were coming in, whether they were a, you know, a Hurley skateboard logo or you know, a bakery shop logo, it didn't matter to that side of the business uh, or the technology. So, so redoing the whole front end, the user experience, making it a lot simpler for businesses. Uh, you know, you come into the website, you upload your logo, you you say how many you want and what size you see it, you check out, instead of a whole design experience. Um, was it took about a year, but it was not something that I think even our investors felt was risky because we kind of could already see that people were wanting that. Mm -hmm. um, so it was uh, it was doable, but you know, like anything, you have to be really patient because. You're, by this point, you know, a year in, you're already way off your business plan. It's not, the revenue's not at the levels that you thought it would be. So you're raising money and, and, and the expectations are now further out. Um, everything has to calibrate to that, including your own 
expectations and you know family pressure and all the stuff that comes with you know not not being on the same plan that you had hoped for um but i think i never wavered from believing that this is something that people really could value and like and um and, and as we as we changed the site and, and sort of reskinned it um in 2012 in the beginning of 12 we relaunched the entire site um and and that was a huge momentum builder for us because that's when things started to really kick because it, it kind of mirrored what the uh, customer experience wanted. Did you anticipate at all that, I mean, I know when you shifted to, B, to B2B, uh, you talk about kind of different clients like, you know, the local bakeries and small businesses and stuff. But if you fast forward today, I think it was kind of maybe, I don't know if this was like genius or maybe by uh, by sheer luck, but uh, I'm going to go with a, with a genius. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go with luck. All right, man. Let's put it. Um, but what's cool is that, like, you look, you look at now, and literally every startup prides itself by not only swag, obviously, but like the stickers. It almost yeah. became like the number one trend with you know startups, and it kind of defines their visual almost. It's it's a huge part of their brand. Did you see that coming? Um, well, yeah, yes and no. Like, I mean, it was again, like you know, you kind of create a business plan around skateboarders and stuff, and and you have. That was our primary market. We had secondary markets, and we kind of knew that startups were into cool die-cut stickers. Uh, we always said that that would be, you know, something that could wave into the into our business model. Um, but once we saw businesses into it, we realized that that was actually quite a good primary market uh, amongst others. Um, and I think the the psychology of it is that, you know, startups are are generally speaking young or younger uh, individuals, risk takers, what have you. Um, breakers but but you know in order for a startup to succeed they have to be authentic to something whatever they're building it has to be really good um, and so I think what's nice about a sticker is that you look to it and you realize that a sticker is pretty authentic to their brand it's playful it's fun and it, it, it actually if you think about it it pivots and morphs according to what the user of the sticker wants it to do so if they want the sticker to go on a water bottle because that's their thing they'll put it on that they want to put it on their desk they'll put it on their desk their laptop their laptop so it's unlike getting a pen where you're like, oh, okay, I got to use this pen. Do I need a pen? A sticker, you can kind of uh, adapt it to anything. And I think the flexibility, the fun factor, and then, of course, a startup, you know, is also looking to be affordable in their marketing. And so when you can get something, you can get like 100 stickers for 50, 60 bucks, you know, that's a really good marketing investment. I think everyone yeah. will tell you they get great value out of that. Um, their, their, their staff feel good. Their customers like the stickers. Um, you know, it just gets a good energy, and it's and, and everyone sees intuitively the ROI on that. No one has to put any real big statistical models to it to know that it works. So, um, I think that was both gratifying and um, exciting to see. Obviously, over the next close to ten years, the startup community just booming uh, in and of itself. And then while that booms, the op one of the offshoots of that is they all want their own custom stickers. For sure. For sure. Well, let's go with luck and genius then, man. This is, uh, <laughs> right. I feel like it's deserving. Um, <laughs> the the cool thing is, um, obviously, when we first met, I you know I obviously came by your offices and checked out the uh, the manufacturing facility because a lot of that I think is done in house, right? Uh, or is yeah. it all done? In yeah, no, we do it all in house. Uh, that was the the one thing we you know we're asked by initial investors, hey, can you outsource all this? Why do you want to get into manufacturing? Just build the technology and. We found that we could not outsource this to anybody. Um, it wasn't that somebody couldn't technically use the same printers we had, but they didn't have the throughput software that we had to basically build on top of it to 
allow it to be so affordable, scalable, and customizable in how we produced, um, you know, hundreds of orders at a time. Um, and so when you're building that, you kind of need a print, you need printers and cutters to keep iterating what you're building. Um, and with that being off, like outside of the company, it would have been, it would have taken a lot longer to keep making that successful and, and work. So, um, yeah, we built it all in house and ever since then, we've just been adding more and more machines, getting more space. Um, and I, and, uh, you know, I, I think as the market for customized goods has grown and small to medium runs are very, very popular, we've just gotten better and better at doing it. So we, um, we, we, it, it makes the most sense to keep that in-house because it's it's part of what makes it very affordable for our customers. Do you feel like that was the sort of most difficult challenge upfront? Just because, like, even when when I hear you say that, I mean, there's so much involved in kind of the logistics, the operational side. It's kind of cap intensive. Uh, mm-hmm. Was that a challenge upfront, or were you sort of uh, geared up, for, uh, you know, to undertake that kind of um, a challenge? Yeah, like I think it's. Um, it's certainly capital intensive, but to be honest, uh, if you weigh the capital you spend on machines against uh, the, the capital you spend on software developers today, uh, I think the software development side of people expense is bigger. So that that kind of is a less of an issue uh, today because some of the machines are not that expensive. As you go, you know, we got into roll labels and we now you know, have million dollar machinery for that. So, so that has become a much more expensive proposition, but to start out, it, it wasn't actually that expensive to, to test it out and then grow that way. And we kind of always felt that that's, you know, part of the digital renaissance in printing is being able to kind of connect these two things together. Um, and if you look at Amazon, then the notion of being able to self-fulfill um, these, these orders uh, felt like that was a, a real part of our economic model that we had to figure out and see how well we could do it. Um, the nice thing about stickers is they weigh, uh, they're very light. You can put them in an envelope. And so we could already see some real good economies in the shipping side if we just, you know, built the ability for us to do it. Um, so, so for us, at least it's worked out quite well, but you know, again, you fast forward 10 years and if I had launched this now, you know, I might've now looked at Shopify and said, oh, well, actually these guys have an, a, a cart we can use. They, they also have fulfillment providers that can do that for us. So maybe I'd look at it a bit differently, but in custom goods, I don't know how, if that still would have even worked for us because we, we still felt that at the end of the day we had to print something custom. And once we do that, we don't know if we really need too many third parties because we're at the point where it's made. We might as well just ship it. Got you. Got you. And what's, what's the size of Sticker you now? Like how many employees are you as that? Um, yeah, we, you know, we do have on the production side some part time because of, you know, seasonality and, and stuff. But uh, if you add all part time and full time together, it's about 80 people. Um, so it's a, yeah, it's a healthy operation. We got a real payroll. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a, it's a good size family now. What, what do you sort of, uh, obviously being the, the sort of president of the, of the business, you know, you founded this concept, what sort of culture did you want to instill in a, in a sticker business? Like, and I know that you're, you know, you're obviously a younger dude as well. So you have kind of that, that swag as well, Andrew. So I'm, uh, I'm curious. Um, yeah, I think, you know, look, you got to hope that people who come into the company can appreciate i think one of the dnas we want in people outside of the five values that i'll speak to in a sec is do they actually get excited about stickers um you know it doesn't mean they can't work here but certainly if they could get excited by what a sticker does what it means how it feels to people um they're they're just gonna 
love working here and be part of this brand more, right? Because they can actually see from our customer perspective how much they can love it. And I think anytime you can see how what you do every day impacts your customer and makes them smile, makes them laugh, makes their business better, you, you are more gratified and fulfilled in working there. So I think that's kind of one thing we look for. But as for the values in the company, um, it less comes out of stickers per se, sticker culture, or you know anything creative as much as it is just what I think makes a good company here. And uh, that was really more about, you know, we have five values. It's honesty, um, ingenuity, uh, flexibility, accountability, and likability. And for different reasons, those, you know, each on, on their own, they all have real importance to the kind of people we want working here. Um, and, they, and, and I think over the test of time, we've realized these are the five things that really, really bubble up. And if, they, if people exhibit these five things, we can be really successful. And once we get something, even on one of those levels, that someone is really deficient in, e.g. if they're not likable, you know, they can be extremely smart, uh, they can be honest, they can be flexible and accountable, but they're not likable at all. People don't want to work with them. And if you don't want to work with somebody, you don't produce the best work. You know, uh, on the other end of the spectrum, if someone's likable and flexible and accountable um, and they're really ingenuitive and in they're thinking, uh, but they're not honest, they can create a pretty toxic environment and you're going on misinformation. And so, any, you know, we've kind of just realized there's five things that we think are fundamentally important in the people. Um, and then if you kind of look outside of that, we're like, hey, can you also get into stickers? Mm-hmm. Um and, and that's kind of how we try to build, you know, the, some of the culture here. Other than that, we really kind of are proud of the diverse, you know, people that are here. I mean, people have got really unique lifestyles and interests. And, and we think that's very much part of why, you know, sticker expression works. It's, it's not defining anything other than what you kind of believe in. If someone were to walk into your, let's say, your office tomorrow, hypothetically, and they're looking to apply and, you know, they have these kind of five values. What would like a, a top performer from a first impression be, you know, in, in your view? Like how would someone sort of really, really impress you if they're looking to get, you know, uh, an opportunity at Stigger? Um, you know, I, I think these, unfortunately, some of these things of the value side come more out once they start working because, you know, mm. you can kind of sometimes talk well, but it's hard to really know. Like it's hard to know how honest somebody is until you, they get put into some very difficult situations and then you see whether or not they, they stick to the honesty. Like, you know, for example, if they miserably failed at a particular thing, are they going to start to manipulate numbers, you know, to make it look like they didn't look, they didn't do so bad. It's hard to see that in an interview, but you, once you get them on board, you, you might be able to uncover it. Um, but I suppose if we have perfect vision and we see that they, they represent all these five values, we get really excited about them. Um, the kinds of people or things that people do, I think, um, and I'm not sure if it's unique to us, but I think in a lot of startups, you know, you gotta, you gotta, you know, walk the walk and talk the talk. You, you, if you're going to be able to be theoretical and can analyze things well, that's going to really help you. But if you can't roll up your sleeves and do them, um, you know, you're going to have some challenges, especially in a smaller company. Um, so I think you, you're always looking for a bit of a balance in people. Um, that they're not just so one dimensional because often this is why flexibility is important because, you know, if the market needs X and we're, we're stuck on Y and no one can kind of be flexible to that, it really makes it hard to scale up a company. Um, 
so we, we, we like flexible thinkers. We like um, people with a lot of these attributes. And I think what happens is, is when you give them little projects, um, the, the results of those projects kind of speak to the caliber of person they are. Um, you get people who, you know, um, might miss the mark on the project. They may not have scored well, but you can see the effort that they put into it. And it speaks to the type of person that they are. Those kind of people usually still stick around because as a, as a founder and an entrepreneur, you know, you're going to fail and you, you don't, you don't mind if people fail. It's kind of how it's the effort and the, and the, the thinking that they did going into it. Um, and you know, whether or not there's full collateral damage around them after they've done something, yeah. um, you know, some of these things are indicators of, of whether or not they'll succeed in, in helping grow a great company. Um, and it, and it sometimes speaks both to their character, their smarts, their personality, you know, a, a whole bunch of things. What, what personal personality trait do you feel helped you obviously grow the business, but, but succeed during turbulent times? I know we, you know, we spoke about a couple and I don't know if you want to share uh, them here, but uh, obviously it's never kind of a smooth road as you, as you know, and sure. uh, failure is always a part of it. So just trying to understand from your perspective now, uh, you know, what those traits are and, and how you've overcome them. Do you, any advice for aspiring founders? Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's always a fine line between being unrealistic and being positive. Um, you know, you got to kind of look at real data and accept the data for what it is. And, and yet I think people have to be, you know, both passionate and optimistic about their businesses and about the road ahead. And I think for whatever reason, I've probably sometimes foolishly held to that. Um, but it hasn't felt like forced. It just, I think that's just my natural DNA. I'm just kind of a half full kind of thinker. Uh, and so I think through the tough times, you've got to be able to kind of still look ahead with a positive lens about what can be great that comes out of it. And I think most of the hurdles we hit, um, we were, we were able to do that. Um, and emphatically, you know, kind of like I said from the beginning, believe that this, this is a phenomenal opportunity for us as a company with what we've built, with what we want to keep building, um, the unique place in the marketplace that we see how the world's evolving and, and how we're meeting a, a really cool solution for people. Um, it, it's just, you know, we get really excited about that. And I think if you're passionate about that, people infectiously, you know, bec like to become part of that if they can believe in it too. Um, and so I think that that combination has really kind of helped us through the test of time. And, and then at the same time, you got to be objective and honest. And sometimes you need you know, some good mentors and advisors to help kind of uh, you see the clarity and the numbers that you're looking to. You might be a little over optimistic on certain things and they'll help, you know, settle you down a bit. But I think that's better than you being really pessimistic about all your numbers and then people trying to motivate you that it's okay. Um, because that, that, that unfortunately, I think has a halo effect on everyone around you. Mm -hmm. Hey, you know, something else I, I really enjoy about uh, your story in particular, on top of what you were just saying is, um, you know, looking at your profile, you didn't d dive into entrepreneurship immediately, right? And right. Uh, what's cool about you is that, you know, I think it was after your MBA, you know, 14 years in, in the sort of corp world, you know, getting that experience, then you decided to, to start Sticker You. Was yeah. that was that natural? I mean, did you did you go to uni thinking that you know, I wanted to be an entrepreneur or was it something that kind of developed gradually for you? Um, well, it's interesting, you know, and I think maybe the lesson is why you got to stick with your gut. Uh, I remember getting out of university and one of my closest friends and I, 
I had come back from the States. Uh, I did my last year in the States. Uh, and when I came back, I brought these products back from the States with me. But there was these like uh, island oasis uh, drinks. They kind of mix with, let's say, you know, vodka and ice. And you can make these like cool, you know, pina coladas, whatever, for bars. Mm-hmm. And I remember my friend, I showed it to him and I was really excited about it. And, and he was actually into it. He's like, hey, let's do this. And I remember like, kind of like when I realized he was all into like, let's just focus on this and do it. I, I kind of then hesitated because then I realized, well, wait a second. Now I'm not going to be able to work. Like I just did my business degree. I need some money. And I kind of feel like I can just work for a company and help them. Uh, this little entrepreneurial thing I love, but I, I just don't really think I'm ready for it. Like I'm, I don't think I'm cut for this yet, even though I kind of wanted to do it. Um, and so after a few weeks, I told him that, you know what, uh, like, you know, I went to a couple stores and one would, one wanted to buy it. We were like, it was getting there that we actually might just run with this. And then I just, just backed out and I said, I, I'm not ready for this. This is just not the right time. And, I, I decided to follow my heart and which said, I need to go work for a company and make some real bad mistakes and learn from them and get money and that kind of stuff. And I just followed that path and I did it once for eight years and then another company for six years. And in each iteration, I was able to be pretty entrepreneurial within the companies. Um, but it felt right to keep growing my career there at, at these two places uh, and have a ton of experience. I don't know if I ever really kept saying to myself consciously, I'm going to go back and be an owner and, and an entrepreneur. I, I, I think you get so involved in what you're doing, you kind of sometimes forget that. But I think when I finally had the epiphany about where the market was going with uh, personalized custom products, that's where I started saying, wait, I gotta, I gotta pursue this. Um, and so it, for me, it really happened organically. I, I, that's the best way to describe it. But I think when I wanted to then finally do this business, um, I was in Italy and I, I kind of had a vision that I wanted to leave the company. I was at mega blocks, move back to Toronto because I wanted my family to be in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Um, I already had two kids and they were two and four and we weren't spending a lot of time together with, with the rest of the family. I just felt in, in my heart a passion to come back to Toronto and I felt like I needed to something else too. And it was in that whole year that this all happened. I moved back to Toronto. I decided to kind of like part ways with, with mega blocks and I got some money to, to, for a few months to kind of pursue this idea. And then one thing led to another and then it, it became uh, that I founded a company, but it, it's, it's just funny how I can't say I, I scripted the whole thing, but I, but at each stage, the most important thing was I just followed my gut uh, that was overwhelmingly compelling me to do something that was at the time felt important. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that, that, that has luckily proved me right, uh, up until this point. I love that, man. There's so many takeaways. I think the one, obviously what you said is trust your intuition. Um, the other is also being reasonable. I know you said this in the earlier point too, but even if you're a natural optimist, uh, you know, don't lose sight of, of the objective, objectiveness of things, whether it's data in your business or, you know, in your career, whether you're ready or not. I mean, it's kind of to be just be, uh, how do you say, what's that saying? Like uh, dance to the beat of your drum. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. if it's not the right time, it's not a bad thing. Just because you see other people being an entrepreneur, it might not be the best thing for you. So I really appreciate that advice. Yeah, no, that was really important. And, you know, again, with the data part, uh, you know, sometimes you're good at looking at the data and you try to be, and then sometimes you got some other people around you. I mean, to be honest, it was six months into the business where our lead, one of our lead investors at our board meeting kind of said, you know, 
what have we learned from the customers, you know, from uh, on StickerU.com so far? And and it was there that I kind of shared the insights that we we see a lot of functional orders, people who need stickers for their packaging or uh, an event or you know, not it's not so much art fun based, it's functional based, and that's what we kind of led us to realize we really got to be thinking about our whole market differently. Uh, the main point being that I kind of maybe saw some of that data, but I didn't know how to act on it or I didn't consciously want to act on it because it kind of went against everything I'd been building. This individual, uh, one of our board members was helped, was there to kind of just objectify and say, wait a second, <laughs> like it's pretty obvious to him, we need to pivot. Um, and that really helped me. Um, and so you, you do want to have some really good people you trust around you that can help look at your data, look at the insights into what you've got and, and try to work with you on what may be the right steps ahead. Um, and so sometimes it's purely gut, sometimes it's your own objectivity, sometimes it's other people's and you kind of have to be open to all of them. Mm, I see. That's amazing, man. One last thing I wanted to, uh, to leave people with, Andrew, and I'd really appreciate the story, man. Uh, I knew even starting the podcast that we're going to get a lot of, uh, you know, great lessons and uncover some cool things from your experience. Um, sure. and, and the last thing is I want people to check out the store. So, uh, if you don't mind sharing kind of location where people can check it out, create some stickers online, sure. would love to sort of end with that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, well, one thing that once kind of maybe interesting for people to note is that, uh, 10, like all like nine, nine years into the business, nine and a half years, we launched this store on queen street in Toronto. It's the world's largest sticker store. And there's over like 550 different stickers from, Wow. cute to motivational to sports to entertainment um uh it really really proud of the diversity of the stickers and we, we've seen is that anyone who walks in is attracted to something uh and and so it's got really something for everyone but the most important thing that also comes of that is that um this the store offers ready-made stickers and it's kind of the in a way it harkens back to the beginning of sticker you where we kind of you know had a very youthful uh, platform for where people can can buy stickers from and make their own, and and yet in this retail model where anyone can come in and we do get teenagers coming in, it's been enormously successful. Um, and so it's just been fun to see full circle that it it actually is serving a customized purpose of marketing. But we now have a broader market that can use our platform, and and all of a sudden we're getting teenagers <laughs> as one of the markets that we never got in the beginning. So. The store is uh, it's on Queen Street. Um, it offers a full range of stickers. And then now in a week, uh, the second half of Queen Street will open at uh, 677 and 679 Queen, where you can um, make your own custom stickers at the store. And, and there's validation of, of how all the stickers are waterproof and work on cars. And so we've got a waterfall and a car in the store, actually, to show that. Um, That's awesome. So it's a, it's a great experiment. Um, they'll be the world's... Uh, that's the history of stickers museum opening up sometime in the q1 in the new year 2020 downstairs in the store um and then we've got a pop-up at square one in mississauga which is adjacent to toronto uh where it's about 150 square feet of the queen street store all packed into that space and it's it's doing um, it's doing really well um so we're uh we're excited people can go onto our website stickeru.com they can go to a shop and they'll see stickeru store and they can they can buy ready-made stickers or on the core site, of course, you can make your own stickers. Um, that's uh, that's the, the origins of the brand. Um, so, um, yeah, hopefully, if anyone wants to check it out, they'll uh, they'll be enlightened, hopefully. Amazing, man. That's uh, that's very cool. Uh, well, 
honestly really appreciate you doing this man and uh finally excited that we got to do this uh, podcast i can't wait to sort of share this across my networks and and uh, just you know help help people get uh excited inspired by stickers and and making sure they know who who the man behind the 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 danger is (laughs) i was gonna say behind the scene but danger is more exciting word but thanks again andrew i appreciate you man yeah, no problem, George. Thanks so much. I uh, wish you well in uh, in beautiful in beautiful Chicago, and I look forward to seeing you when I'm there. Cheers, pal. All right, take care.